Well, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Sorry to interrupt uh, the greeting. That's good. That's good. I'd like to see that. Hey, if you're a guest this morning, I want to send a very special welcome to you. My name is Paul Pretty. I'm the teaching pastor here. It's great to worship uh, alongside of you. It's great to have the opportunity to continue in that worship as we study uh, God's Word. So good to uh, see you again. So good to worship alongside of you. A couple of things before we get started today. As you came in uh, and on your seat or around your seat, uh, you might have seen this thing called Life Groups, uh, and it's a catalog in a sense. It folds out, and um, within this, we have QR codes, and you can scan that QR code and get information on uh, what these things we call Life Groups. And so uh, at LifePoint, we try and do two things uh, as well as we possibly can, and of course, there's always room for improvement, always room to grow. But we try and do Sunday mornings really well, and we try and do Life Groups really well. Uh, life groups uh, meet throughout the uh, community during the week. Uh, we usually meet for 12 or 14 weeks, and then we'll, we'll pause, we'll take a break for several weeks, and then we'll kick back up. And so today is the term launch, if you will, uh, of a new season of life groups. And so given there's a, it's a new launch, to be clear, life groups are always open, but sometimes it's a little bit easier, I think, to, to walk into something, to try out something new uh, if, uh, if something's just starting up. Right? And I understand there there's could be some trepidations behind that, but I will say that God so often works through the context of community, and we're going to talk about that uh, today. And so please um, familiarize yourself with uh, groups. We're going to have our, our life group leaders out in the lobby after service, and so if you need to ask questions, how do I get plugged in, uh, we would love to connect with you, get you the information uh, that, we, that you need. Okay. Um, so today, we are in week three of a series called Broken Mirrors. And what we're doing in this series, the big idea, the big concept is that broken people reflect a perfect God. Now the reason that is the big idea or the big concept of the series is because the, the structure, if you will, in a sense, is we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, And in Hebrews chapter 11, if you're not familiar, uh, the book of Hebrews, sort of zooming out and saying, what, what is the book of Hebrews, if you're not familiar? That's okay. I'm glad that you're here, right? We can learn these things together. The book of Hebrews was written in a New Testament context, which means it was written after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven. And so then you have these people called Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They're, they're following Jesus. And there was a particular group of people who were Hebrew or Israelite ethnically, if you will, former followers of Judaism who had converted to Christianity. And these people were then undergoing difficult, severe, harsh persecution. And in the face of that persecution, they were wavering. You see, the, the reality for these early believers, these, this group of Hebrews, is that they were in such a situation. Their faith in Jesus had essentially placed a target on their back. And, and the question they were beginning to ask themselves is, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth the hardship that I'm enduring? Is Jesus worth the tension and the separation that I may experience from my family? Is Jesus worth the, the wrath of the Roman Empire? And the author is seeing this and he is writing to the Hebrew people and he's saying, look at the wonder of Jesus, look at the beauty of Jesus, look at how he saves you. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, really the diving board in a sense, the springboard for this entire series, what the author does is he gives story after story of people who had great faith. 
The people of old, the people of the Old Testament prior to the uh, incarnate, uh, that is the personal on earth life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, these Old Testament people who had faith in God. He's saying, look at their stories of faith, be encouraged, keep the faith. That's really what we're talking about in this series. And we're looking at five different stories of incredible faith, five different stories of how people kept the faith even in the midst of difficult persecution. So often what we see is that these people are flawed and broken people. We saw that last week in particular with the story of Samson. Uh, There's perhaps no more person that is more broken than Samson and yet is still an example of faith. Uh, But this week, what we're going to do is we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Um, And and again, I just want us to be asking this question as we go. Really, the question is, how does following Jesus really impact my life? How how does Jesus, and knowing who Jesus is, does it impact my life? Or, and I've been here, so I can say it from personal experience, is Jesus a, a, a name tag that we place on our chest for an hour or two on a Sunday morning and then has no bearing on the rest of our lives. What I want us to ask and really consider throughout this morning is, is Jesus someone who shapes you, who forms you, who transforms you? And does Jesus impact your life in such a way that there might be some difficult hardships that you have to endure for the glory and for the sake of Christ, for his glory and for our good, right? I want us to be thinking about those things as we go into our morning. So again, our text primarily, first jumping off point, Hebrews 11, verse 23. I'm going to pray for us, okay? And then we're going to get into the text. And so let's go to the Lord and ask for some help. Uh, Father, we do need you this morning. Uh, as Brad was saying, there's so much chaos in our lives, and, and all of us are coming from different points today, personally. And so uh, would you help us? Would you make your word living and active? You promised God that your word is living and active, but would you make it that for us this morning so that we would be transformed We would be a people who submit ourselves to the word of God and say, God, shape me, make me more like you. Father, would you help me teach clearly this morning and get me out of the way, but just help me point us, Jesus, to your wonder, to your glory, to your splendor. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Hebrews 11, verse 23, all right? The text says this, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. All right. So that's the story, right? The story after story of, hey, this person had great faith. And specifically here, we're talking about Moses' parents. It says they had faith. Moses is born. There's an edict of some kind. And so they do not give in to that edict. They hide their baby. And so I think that begs a little bit of exploration, right? So what is this passage talking about? It feels like we just jumped in and parachuted out of nowhere, and we, we did, frankly, let's be honest. And so I think we got to get a bit of a more full picture. And so to do that, uh, if you turn to the book of Exodus, all right, the book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And what we see is we're actually going to get the more full and complete story to a degree of what it is the author of Hebrews is referencing. Right, so we're sort of in two different timelines. We're in a New Testament context, referencing an Old Testament context, and then there's a third context, which is us here today. All right, so that's what's happening. So a little bit of context, if you will. What's happening in the lives of believers at the time of the Exodus? Well, prior to the passage that we're going to read, uh, what we see is there's this guy named Joseph. 
Joseph and the story of the technicolor coat, you might uh, recognize that story. Joseph, um, his brothers do not like him. Joseph, let's be honest, he seems a little bit prideful when he's younger. Uh, he he's maybe could show some wisdom. He's like, hey guys, I had a dream. Y'all are going to bow down to me. I mean, how do you think that was going to go, you know? And so uh, Joseph's brothers, not to excuse their evil, because it was horrible what they did, they first plotted to murder him. Then they said, you know what? Let's gain a little profit off of him. They end up selling him into, uh, to slave traders who take him to Egypt. Um, but what we see is that God is, is somehow redeeming all of this brokenness. God is somehow using the evil ultimately for good. How God does that is a bit beyond me, but God is powerful, God is good. And so Joseph is sold into slavery. What happens is that God is with him. God gives him favor. And so Joseph has these abilities by the power of God to interpret dreams. Eventually, Joseph is, is identified by Pharaoh. He's very valuable in a sense uh, to, to the, uh, the Egyptian empire. Um, Mo, uh, Joseph has a dream. There's going to be a famine. A bunch of things happen. And eventually, what, what happens is God uses Joseph to really save Egypt and to save the surrounding region. What happens because of this famine is that Joseph's brothers and his family, they end up coming to Egypt to receive food. What happens is that then the people of Israel, right, at this point is like 70 people. This nation that we call Israel, 70 people, they end up migrating to Egypt. They are given the choice land of Egypt. And what happens then is they begin to multiply, Right? That 70 multiplies and it multiplies and it multiplies and it multiplies. Eventually, Joseph dies. We see that in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis. And then we turn then to Exodus chapter uh, 1, and we see that the situation has changed. No longer is the Pharaoh who knew Joseph in power. Generations have gone by. Time has passed. And so we're in a new situation, a new context. And I want to show us really the heart of the Pharaoh at the time of Moses. All right, are, you, are we tracking? Are we, we're on the same page, hopefully. Okay, so here, here's what's happening. I'm going to read um, Exodus 1, beginning in verse 8. This is really the situation that we're in. It says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, <clears throat> excuse me, who did not jo know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set up taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Pharaoh's strategy, if you will, is slavery and oppression to try and control this population. He goes so far as to then, as he sees that these people are still multiplying, still growing, he then instructs the midwives of Egypt. He says, hey, when you are going to help a, a Hebrew woman or an Israelite woman give birth, if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. Evil. The midwives, thankfully, do not listen to Pharaoh, and they sort of concocted this story to say, look, those Hebrew women, they are strong. By the time we get there, the babies are already born. Nothing we can do, sorry. And so Pharaoh, he, he then says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a law across all of the nation of Egypt. Any Hebrew boy that is born, I want you to throw them in the Nile River. Evil. And so that's then the situation. We've gone from really, really good to really, really bad. 
That's the context. That's the world that we are within. And so with that being said, I want us to open then to uh, chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. And, and here's the story then that the author of Hebrews is referencing. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took uh, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Okay. What we see after that, and that's, that's, the, that's the story that the author of Hebrews is referencing. What we see then after that point is, is they hide Moses. Uh, three months go by. He's, you know, he's loud, and they're like, ah, we can't really hide him anymore. In faith, what they do is they, they have this basket, and they put Moses in the basket, and they say, we trust you, God. <clears throat> and they send Moses down the river. Eventually, of course, maybe we know the story, maybe we don't, and that's, that's okay. What happens is Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. Uh, he becomes, in a sense, a, a prince uh, of Egypt. Eventually, he has a heart for his Hebrew people. He tries to free them on his own power. That goes horrifically wrong. He flees into the wilderness. When he's an old man, 80 years old, if you're 80, it's not that old. Um, but anyway, he's, he, he's 80 years old, and he comes back, and this time, God is freeing the people. And what we see is that Israel, the nation, does receive freedom out of Egypt. It's an incredible story. But again, the, the, the thing that, that the author of Hebrews is talking about is this one-verse section. The woman conceived, bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child. She, threw, uh, she hid him excuse me, three months. And I'll be honest with you. Uh, this week I was, I was reading this and I was praying and reading it and praying and reading it and praying and then reading it again and praying and... Huh. I was at a conference. Um, I was a little bit encouraged. I was at a conference about a year ago. It's called the Basics Conference it's up in Cleveland. One of the speakers was a guy by the name of John Woodhouse. Uh, if you know that name, John Woodhouse, a prominent theologian. He's, uh, he's not 80, but you know, he's up there. He's been doing it for a long time. Um, I've got to stop with that joke. Anyway, so he's been, he's been faith, faithful in ministry for a very long time. So this guy, John Woodhouse, he stands up, a whole room of pastors. It was a pastor's conference. John Woodhouse stands up, and he's from Australia. So he's a very thick Australian accent. And, and he says, um, 2 Kings chapter 1. And so we're like, okay, 2 Kings chapter 1. And he said, what does one do with 2 Kings chapter 1? And we're like, he's like, I have not the slightest. And it was like, okay, I'm not sure where we're going here, right? So he tells this story about how he was assigned 2 Kings chapter 1 to teach at this conference. He sits down with it, and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. Well, by the grace of God, eventually he had some thoughts and some insights, and he led us through the text beautifully. The reason I share that story is because I sat down, Hebrews 11.23, Exodus 2, 1 and 2, I have no idea. It's not a great place to be in since I'm standing here with you this morning. Really, I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. I had many long nights this week, and I just could not figure it out. I was like, Lord, please help me, because, you know, Sunday's coming. And so I began to just sort of get back to the basics, saying, okay, Lord, how, how do you engage with a text? Right? This is maybe a scary question for me to be asking and admitting that I ask, right? And so praying about it, and I had this book, a really, really good book. It's called Grasping God's Word, and it, and it walks you through how to really study any text in the Bible. And I was thinking through, okay, I, I can't see anything here. I don't really know what to do with anything. I'm confused, Lord. And then I, I felt like the Lord reminded me, Paul, every word of the Bible is breathed out by me. 
Every word of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus, as Jesus would say. Every word of the Bible is profitable for teaching. All of it. And so the problem is not the Bible. The problem is me, right? And so I began asking, okay, Lord, what do I do with this? And so in this textbook, it says, look, the first thing you need to ask is what did this text mean to the original audience, right? What did the text mean to the biblical original audience? audience. I'm like, okay, let's start from sort of the, from the ground here up and ask the question. Here's our text. We both, we know it. We've read it a couple times. We've talked about it. What does it mean to the original audience? Well, then we have to ask the question, who's the original audience, right? Well, actually Moses is the one who wrote the book of Exodus, right? And so the original audience would have been after God uses Moses to free the people from Egypt, they're in the wilderness the original audience would have been that group of people who was following Moses to what is referred to as the promised land. So Moses would have had this text, and they would have known this text. And so then we ask the question, okay, well, how, what was the meaning of this text and the story of Moses' birth? What did that mean to that original audience wandering around the wilderness? Well, let's, let's think about that for, for a minute. So uh, back in Genesis, there's a little bit of of context here, right? They, they would have understood some of these contexts, some of these nuances, right? This is a little more familiar maybe with them. Well, there was a promise given back in Genesis 50, all right? Genesis 50, Joseph, we talked about him before, he is dying and he gives this prophecy. So it's a word from the Lord. He says this in Genesis 50, verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. All right, so there's this promise. It's a promise in the background. Now again, imagine you're in the wilderness. You've been freed out of Egypt. And the promise that you've been given is that God is going to take you to a promised land. His land. But here's the challenge. You're in the wilderness, and you're seemingly just sort of wandering around. If you look at a map of the, of the journey from Egypt to, to the promised land, it is not as the crow flies. It is all over the place. You're like, Moses, what are you doing, right? Like, you need a, a, a compass or something. Like, he is all over the map. And so then, okay, again, okay, what does this text mean? This story, this, this birth story, what do we do with that? How does that relate to the original audience? Well, the original audience would have said, they would have read this, and they would have said, okay, God, God had a prophecy that he would deliver us out of Egypt. And then when that baby came along, what happened? In many ways, that's the first sort of fulfillment of that promise. But there was a process involved. Remember, what, what was sort of a seemingly an important thing that had to happen? It says, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. I was a little bit thrown off by this once again. I'm like, Lord, what do we do with this? Because the way that it seems to read church is that she looks at this baby, she sees him as externally appealing, and she says, okay, I'll keep him. And that was sort of struck me, like, wait a minute, he's a, because he's a fine child, she didn't throw him in the Nile, that seemed to conflict with what I know about the Bible. These people are commended as people of faith, surely they wouldn't make a decision on whether or not to keep a baby based upon his appearance. So I began to dig in a bit. I began to dig in, I looked up this word fine, and in the Hebrew, the word fine is the word tov, T-O-V. I began to look up the word tov a little bit and try to understand that, and I found it in Genesis chapter 1. 
and the context that I found it within is when God is creating all of creation by the power of his word. He speaks creation into existence. He speaks light into existence. And then the Bible tells us he sees the light and he says, it is good. It is tov. He speaks all of these sections of creation. He creates the, the heavens, creates the earth, he He creates night, he creates day, he creates vegetation, he creates animal. Time and time again, God says it is good. It is tov. Over and over and over again, he creates humankind. Eventually he says, it is tov. It is very good. And so then, if that's the same word used here, what that means is that Moses' mom looked at him And it wasn't about the physical external beauty. Let's be honest. Babies look like little aliens covered in goo when they're born, right? It probably wasn't about the physical appearance. What she sees in this miracle of life is tov. It's this goodness. It's this nature of who God is and what God, very specifically, what God says is good. And she sees this life as good and as beautiful. One of our partner ministries, uh, uh, Voice of Hope, the Pregnancy Resource Center, one of the things they do to try and save babies' lives is, is yes, they're, they're caring for the mother's health and they're doing all of these things and they want to try and get her an ultrasound. Why? So that she can see that little sea turtle-looking creature in there and they can see the beauty of the life that's within inside. And so when this mother has this baby and she says, it is good, what she links it back to is the promise that God would deliver her people out of slavery. And she's looking at this baby and saying, God, you are good. I trust you. I know there is this command that says I'm supposed to drown this baby. But no, I believe in your promise. I believe in your goodness. And I believe I'm going to submit this little one to you and say, Lord, use him for your purposes, for your glory. You see, when we have faith in God, we recognize the goodness of God or the things that God determines to be good. And then when we have faith, we recognize the goodness of God. What happens is then we experience the fulfillment of the promises of God. Are you tracking with me? So again, back to the context of wandering around in Israel. They're reading this and they're thinking, okay, there was a promise. Okay, I see it. She had this baby and she sees good. And then she has faith and says, no, I'm not going to listen to Pharaoh. I'm going to have faith that God is going to use this. Okay, how does that, that's the meaning, right? What does that mean to, like, the Bible has a clear meaning. I want to be clear on that. The Bible teaches a, a clear truth on a single verse, and that, that truth then has different applications, right? It doesn't mean that it means something different. It means that it can apply differently to our lives. I want to be very careful there. So again, you're wandering around the wilderness. What you have to be thinking is, okay, God has a promise. That promises he's going to get us to the promised land. And now, what, what about the goodness part? What we see as we read the narrative of this journey from, from Egypt to the promised land is that people are complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining. Right? And so what did this text mean to the original biblical audience? Well, they, they, all of a sudden, they see that, that what God is doing is good. That manna from heaven, that is a good thing from God. That quail they're eating every day, that is a good thing from God. That pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, that is a good thing from God. And so they see the goodness of God. God, you are with us. You are leading us. I'm going to believe in the promise of God that you're going to get us to the promised land. I see the goodness of you. And then I'm going to, because I have faith in your promise and I see your goodness, by the grace of God, I want to experience the fulfillment of the promise that you've given. Are you tracking with me? Right? And so that's, I think, the original 
audience how they would have understood this original text. Again, there's so much more to it. All we had to do was ask that simple question, what did it mean to the original audience? Now we go on because there isn't just one audience here, is there? I said this at the beginning. There's a second audience. That second audience is in uh, the book of Hebrews. All right, so if you uh, flip over to the book of Hebrews and you're, you're reading through and you see the text, and I'll, I'll read it for us again just so we... Um, excuse me, have it. Verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he, the child was beautiful, tov, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, you, you notice something is a little bit different here. In this particular context, they seem to add this thing, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Meaning they were not afraid of Pharaoh's command that said, throw all the baby boys into the Nile and kill them. And so then, what does this text mean to the original biblical audience? And now we are no longer in Exodus. Now we are in first century and we're in this people group called the Hebrews who are being persecuted, who are struggling, who are having just these fears to say, Jesus, are you worth it? Jesus, are you, are you really worth it? Because it seems as though if I said no to you, Jesus, life would be a whole lot easier. What is this? Again, it has a single meaning. The Bible has a single meaning, but how does this then apply to this original audience? Well, there would have been laws and things. If you look in some of the um, historians, the first century historians, what we see, there's a great persecution that breaks out against Christians. There's actually an, an expulsion, if you will, um, from uh, Jerusalem, uh, uh, from Rome, excuse me, of Jews, right? There, there's this removing of, of people, a great persecution breaks out. And so there would have been these commands like, you can't do this, you can't do this. So again, how does this text encourage them? Remember the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to say, keep the faith, keep going strong. Well, we follow the same pattern. What does the text mean? It means that when we believe in the, the, the promises, we have faith in the promises of God, we see the goodness of God, then we see the promises of God realized. Well, what were the promises of God to this original people? I want to turn, if you will, to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I want to just read to you one of the promises that they would have been clinging to, that would have been connected to their study of this text. It says this, Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I can understand if you say, what does that mean? All right, so here's what the author is saying. He's saying, look, the promise is that Jesus is your high priest who has entered into the presence of God. A high priest would intercede for the people, create, make sacrifices on behalf of the people to give them the forgiveness of their sins. And so the promise that he is pointing them toward is you, even in the midst of your persecution, the midst of your hardship, remember and cling to the fact that Jesus intercedes for you on, on behalf of you. He stands in the presence of God and through faith in him, you too can enter into the presence of God boldly and confidently. Cling to that promise. And so now then, how do they, how do they see this point of, and it was told, it was good. Well, they had to sort of reorient their minds to, to understand the things that they were experiencing, to say, yes, those are good, which would allow them to keep the faith. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Chapter 12, starting in verse 7, it says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Jump down to verse 11. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." All of a sudden, these hardships, this persecution that they're enduring. Remember, they've got the promise they're going to enter into the presence of God. Now these hardships, how is this good? How can any of this possibly be good? The author is saying, no, God is disciplining you because he wants to shape you. He wants to conform you. He wants to make you holy through Christ. And then you can get to the, okay, okay, maybe it is good. This is counterintuitive, but it is good. So then I can step on this side and I can have faith in the goodness of God. I can have faith in the promise of God. And then I can experience it. Do you see that? I know it's sort of a lot going on this morning. That's why I said I sat down with this text and I said, I have no idea. But again, I think when we ask these questions, so they would have been reading this and they said, yeah, she had a promise and she kept that baby. And then by faith, she wasn't afraid. She wasn't afraid. She could say, no, I I believe in the promises of God more than I fear the commands of Pharaoh. And then they could have put that into their own context and say, yeah, there's these commands out here that say we can't meet. Maybe they say it's illegal to follow Jesus. There's these commands out here that we can't do this, this, and this. But no, I believe in the promises of God. I believe God is good. And so I'm going to endure in the midst of the hardship. You see it. That's just audience number two. There's a third audience. And again, that third audience is us in the room. We are separated by thousands of years of history. We are separated by a crazy amount of context. We are separated by all sorts of things. And yet, the Bible is trustworthy and true. The Bible carries with it each passage has a specific intended meaning. And that meaning remains the same. The meaning remains the same that in this passage from Moses' parents, there was the promise, there was the goodness, and there was the faith to endure and to remain steadfast. What about our context? You know, we're not wandering around in... In the wilderness, thankfully, it might feel like it when you walk outside, but we're not. We're not in a place where there is outright persecution against Christians at this point in our history. Praise God, that's a good thing. So what is our context? Well, I was thinking a little bit back to the specifics from Hebrews 11, verse 23. Remember, he added that specific detail. He said, because they saw the beauty of this child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And I was thinking about this, okay, why again, that little addition? Again, I think very specifically for that original audience, that do not be afraid piece is really important. And I actually think that do not be afraid piece is really important for us as well. Within this series, we're trying to do several different things, which is what makes it difficult, but we're talking through our core values as a church as well. We're talking through how do these people, how do these characters really illustrate and demonstrate the core values that we have as a church? When we say core values, what I want to be clear is that these are biblical things that we have identified as important in our following of Jesus. There are certainly more things when it comes to following Jesus, but we would say our core values encapsulate uh, sort of the bare-bone necessities. Uh, and what, the way I think about core values, I, th- I think it's helpful uh, to think through it um, this way. There's hopefully a slide that talks about, yep, core values narrow our focus and give us direction in our relationship with Jesus. Right? That's really the function of core values. Our core values here are listed uh, as the church. We have five of them. Um, and so the first one is gospel identity. That really means we are new. 
We talked about that in week one, that, that we are undeniably flawed by sin, we are undeniably broken people, and at the cross we are unbelievably loved. Jesus died for us, yet while we were still sinners, right? He, he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Gospel identity is perhaps the, it is the most important thing for us to understand, that we are a made new people through faith in Jesus. A second core value we talked about last week of reaching priority, that we are all missionaries, that we should all be carrying with us wherever we go, whether that's in the workplace, the grocery store, our family gathering, wherever we are, whether it's a mission trip abroad, we just had a team come back from Uganda, whether it's long-term missions through whatever organization, whatever you're doing, you are a missionary wherever you are. Missions is not for just the pastor. Missions is for all of us because we are all the people of God, just to be clear. And today, what we're really doing is we're talking about authentic community. Authentic community really means that we are family. And so then comes the question, well, what in the world does this passage have to do with authentic community? And again, for the third time, I would first answer this to say, I have no idea. But by the grace of God, I actually think there's something really, really powerful here. Authentic community really stems from the uh, text in Acts chapter 2. I'll read it for you. If you've got a Bible with you, Acts chapter 2, this is after Jesus' ascension into heaven. There is a group of about 50 Christians gathering in an upper room in Jerusalem, and they are praying and they are waiting for power to come upon them. Uh, Suddenly the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon them like rushing wind. They go out into Jerusalem where there just so happens to be people from all over the place speaking different languages, coming into Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit empowers them to speak in the tongues of different languages, to share the gospel. 3,000 people are added to the faith that day, which is a great day if you're a church planter. Um, That creates some problems, right? And it's just an incredible moment. And then what we see is we're, we're given some details about what the life of this early church was like, starting in verse 41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The picture we get here, church, is of this amazingly tight-knit community. People understanding the value of Jesus far surpasses any possession they have, any status they have and to say, Jesus, you're worth it. I'm going to buy and I'm going to commit to being a part of this people. So again, how does all of this tie together for us? Again, I really love that the author of Hebrews adds that bit about fear. They were not afraid of Pharaoh's edict, of the king's edict. I think when it comes to to considering engaging in something like authentic community, one of the reasons we don't is actually fear. They're living radically here. It says they're selling possessions, they're giving to the poor. I mean, it's, it's like radical. And I think when we read that, we say, well, that sounds like an easy way to get taken advantage of. That sounds like an easy way for some leader to have a little bit too much power and to manipulate and to control me. That sounds a little bit like a cult. We have, like, just be honest, right? It's scary. Like, you read that and it's like, man, it, but God says that this is good. This is tov. 
this people being knit together by the Holy Spirit, seeing again the value of Jesus beyond and above all, they say, no, that is good. I want to commit to that because through that you transform me and through that you reach people. Day by day, more were being added to their number. Day by day, more were being saved out of the outflowing and by the empowerment of the Spirit of this thing that we call authentic biblical community. And so I ask you this morning, are you really engaged in biblical community? Coming to church on a Sunday morning is is great. I'm thankful that you're here. But what we see earlier in, in verse 46 is they attended the temple. That's large group gathering. And then they broke bread in people's homes. That's small group gathering. We see the structure of gathering large and gathering small. So what that means within the life of the Christian, we need both of those rhythms to really step into what God, I think, and we've, we've called authentic community and this value that we are family. But again, what are the fears that prevent you from stepping in? I think oftentimes it's, again, I don't want to be taken advantage of. We, I think we have a, a, just a deep core fear that if we are vulnerable with someone else and we allow someone to see our mess, and we sort of pull back the curtain and just be like, I'm broken. We are terrified that people will see that vulnerability and they'll hurt us. They'll poke that soft spot and then we will recoil and we will be worse than we thought we were before. I think that's a real fear we have. And look, if we're doing this thing on our own, we're not going to do it. <laughs> there will be people who get hurt. But... If we do this and we say, God, we believe that this is good. We believe in your word. We believe in its authority. We want to commit to this by by the grace of God. I believe he can do something really, really powerful and really, really beautiful. And so I I want to ask you, are there fears that you have that come to, to understanding what are the promises of God? How is that good? And how can I see those promises. You see, one of the promises of God that we can cling to is that that through faith in Christ, we are being knit together as the body of Christ here on earth, the church. The church is not these walls. The church is the people of God who gather within these walls to praise and worship Jesus. But the church is a people of God, what we're called the body of Christ. And so wherever we go, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus is the head. That's the promise. And yet the good thing he says is, no, you have to actually plug in and be a part of that body. And so what we need to do is plug in and be a part of that body. And that's Sunday morning, but it's far more. It's every aspect of our lives. Are we a part and are we functioning as the body of Christ? And it's hard and we can only do it by by the grace of God and through the empowerment of the Spirit of God. I want to be really clear. And I think when we are faithful to that, what we will see is radical transformation in our lives. And we'll see that being a part of the body of Christ is really, really beautiful. And it's what we actually need to grow and to know who Jesus really is. I will say personally, I was shaped by life group. Personally, I I remember being invited to life group and saying I'd rather not go, but by the grace of God, my then fiance, now wife, was like, we're going. I remember showing up a half hour late, and the door was the squeakiest door anybody could ever have, and the whole room turned and looked at us, and I was like, all right, well, we'll see you. Now, we walked in, and I was scared. I really was. We were living in sin at the time. I was scared people were going to judge us. We got into that group and people loved us. They knew our issues. And they cared for us enough to invest in us. And eventually, again, I've told this story a hundred times, but I can't not tell it. Eventually, the Holy Spirit of God worked in us and we were driving home one night and we, we were like, we call ourselves Christians, but Jesus isn't our Lord. 
So what we need to do is repent of our sin, and we need to try and be obedient to him, and that's what, we've, that's what we did, and we just keep taking steps, right? So we did. And so I want to encourage you, how, how can you, how can you engage, how can you step in? How can you be a part of what God is doing in this community? How can you be a part of what God is doing in this church for your good? Yes. And ultimately for God's glory. People working together who are flawed, sinful, broken people as we all are, but then being knit together. Talk about the glory of God. Only God can do that. Amen? So what we're going to do, church, this, this morning as we close, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. Okay, and so if you got the uh, communion elements, great. If you didn't, you can raise your hand. One of our team members will bring those communion elements around to you. I know there's some shuffling around the room. That's, that's right and good as we make sure we get you those elements. Okay, keep your hand up. Make sure we get those. Communion is a sacred thing. I want to be clear on that, okay? And so if you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I don't really have a personal relationship with Jesus. Number one, I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. I want to be clear on that. Number two, I would say, hey, don't take communion because we wouldn't want you to say, Jesus' body broken, Jesus' blood spilled for me, if that's not really true of you, right? We don't want you to say something untrue about yourself. But if you are a believer, we certainly invite you, whether you're attending from another church or just checking us out, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is for you. So the Bible tells us that we need to assess our hearts before we go and take communion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer we're really going to assess our hearts and ask God to, to work in us again by the power of his spirit. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and let's just work through some of these next steps together. Father, we praise you and we thank you. And God, we know that your word is good and that it's true and that it's faithful. Father, for some of us, we, we are living and operating in fear right now and fear is holding us back from a lot of things. Fear is holding us back maybe from stepping into community. Maybe fear is holding us back from having a conversation with someone that we've wronged and we need to repent of that. Maybe fear is, is holding us back from forgiveness of another person because we're scared we're going to get hurt again. Maybe fear is holding us back from all sorts of things. And so would we learn from, would we learn from Hebrews 11.23 that we shouldn't be fearful we should believe in the promises of God. We should see the good things that God is doing and we should have faith, trusting God that you can do what only you can do. So this morning, if you're struggling with fear, I want, to get, I want you to give that to the Lord to say, God, here is my fear. I trust you and Holy Spirit, help us. God, help us love each other well, be gracious with one another and desire the good for that person, and that ultimate, ultimate good is a connection with you, Jesus. God, help us with that. Some of, the, of us this morning, we need to take maybe a first step, and that first step is saying, Jesus, I understand that I am a sinner. You think about that. Being a sinner is going against the word and the authority of God. And I know culturally we say, you're a sinner, and we get, that's an offensive thing to say, but here's the thing, I'm a sinner too. <laughs> We're in good company. The thing about the Bible is that, that God does not see us in sinners and, and, and say, how dare you? God sees us and say, yeah, I, I know you are. That's why I went to the cross to save you. When Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing is he was taking my sin, he was taking your sin upon himself. Jesus, as the scriptures would say, became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that what? 
you and me, we might become the righteousness of God. And some of us this morning, we need to to understand that Jesus has paid for our sin. What that means is you're forgiven. And while you may never forget the sins you've done, you need to understand that you're now a new creation in Christ. You're a new person. What used to define you no longer does. Who you used to be is no longer true. You are now a blood-bought son or daughter of God through faith in Christ. And maybe some of us, Ian, we need to take that first step this morning. Whatever your first step is, I want you to just, Holy Spirit, work in us. And as we take these communion elements, Father, would you help us understand the sanctity of them, that Jesus, your body broken for us, your blood spilled for us so that we can be made right with you, God. Through faith, through Christ, we can be made right with you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So church, together then, let's take the elements. First is the bread or the wafer, and this, this again represents Jesus' body broken for us. And so together, let's take the bread. And then comes the cup. The cup represents Jesus' blood spilled for us, the payment for our sins that we can receive forgiveness and freedom. Together we take the cup.